Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. A morning person now? I suppose so. Or... Good afternoon or good evening, whatever time of day it is for you. But for us, it's, it's the morning. The morning. Oh my God. We said it at the same time. I know. Jinx. Oh, oh my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm going to our meme. Too far. I went into our memes. We are turning into morning people, which is an unexpected turn. I know. You are going to bed at like 1030. I can't believe it. If you would have told even a few months ago me that that was what happened... She would have been like, huh. <laughs> yeah, we, all, we like, came home at like, what, 11? Yeah. If that. Last then... night. I mean, but the night before that, I went to, I was literally asleep by 1030. Yeah. Which, I mean, when I hear people saying that they go to sleep by 1030, I'm like, you are a full on biatch. Yes. Like you, <laughs> and now, and now that's me. Welcome. Welcome to the world. I mean, it's me too. I'm like yeah. a half an hour later than you, but. But you know what? It's still. Yeah. I like it. I like it too. I mean, we woke up at seven something. Yeah. And we're recording by eight. Yeah. But we were just kind of looked at each other and we're like, it's not happening. We're not recording for what, an hour and a half Yeah. at 1040. We're going to mess home. up our sleep schedule. Yeah. We got home at like not even 11 o'clock and we look at each other and we're like, are we really about to record right now? No. We'll be up until like 1230. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that'd be crazy. Yeah. That would be crazy. <laughs> Uh, so here we are at the bright and early time of eight in the morning recording and uh, loving it. Loving it. Just the loving noises it. of the morning. Yes, it's amazing. Um, and I have quite the story for you today. This quite is the story. Yeah, I do. This is unlike one that we've done. Have we done one like this? Uh, like an innocence project type? I think we have once before because I do remember getting angry about it. Yeah. I can't really recall though. I, at least I don't think I've covered one of like a wrongful conviction, like a full, that like that's what the story is. Oh, um, that's what the story is. Yeah. Uh, I think we did one. I want to say we did one. I don't remember which one it was though. Yeah. Well. Oh, Um. yeah. It was, uh, there was like a blood spot on a piece of glass that got broken um, and the DNA matched for some reason. But then there was like, that was the only thing that they had sure yeah that's how usually these things go it's like they have almost no evidence but the cops are just like really honed in on this one person and they're like we're gonna make this fit like however we need to we're gonna make this fit yeah i don't know it just it's really is they just find a conclusion early and then just look for evidence to support it yeah um and this one is extra bad because they honed in on a 14 year old and they're like, you oh know what? God. We're going to say that you are guilty of this. And uh, anyway, let's just jump in because this is an unbelievable story. Let's jump in. In the early morning of December 5th, 1998, 14-year-old Michael Polite was having a sleepover with one of his friends when he was woken up to find his mother's murdered body on her bedroom floor. But that was only the beginning of the hell he was about to endure, because at only the age of 14, Michael would be found guilty of murdering his mother, Rita Polite. Michael Bernard Polite, who went by the nickname Bernie, was the youngest child of three in the Polite family. Rita and Edward Polite had two daughters, Crystal and Melanie, as well as their youngest, Michael. And despite their age difference, Michael grew up very close with his two older sisters. They grew up in the tiny rural community of Hopewell, Missouri, about 70 miles southwest of St. Louis. It was a safe area. No one locked their doors, and what made them feel even more safe was the entire Polite family lived in the area. Rita and Edward Polite had married and began having their children as teens, and according to their two daughters, the couple had a lot of struggles. Edward was allegedly mentally abusive toward Rita and often cheated on her, which caused them to fight relentlessly. But despite the constant cheating and fighting, Rita loved Edward, and her feelings for him outweighed the negative. Wow, that's a lot of love. Seriously, I mean, you gotta really love someone to overlook 
a lot of cheating cheating and mental abuse constant fighting yeah yeah wow it's awful eventually though the love wasn't enough According to Michael, he had witnessed domestic violence on both ends, and a year before Rita's murder, there had been an incident where police were called. Michael had told the officer that night his dad pushed his mother to the floor and had choked her. The couple ultimately divorced in the summer of 1998 after more than 20 years of marriage. Some sources claim that Rita filed for divorce. However, Edward claims that he was the one who filed for the divorce. At the time, he had been cheating on Rita with a woman named Crystal Sellers. The two had worked together and had begun an affair, which is what ultimately ended Edward and Rita's marriage. Their divorce decree cited Edward's infidelity as the reason. The divorce was very messy. It was a battle in divorce court and was tough on the whole family. But before we get into that, let's talk a bit about Michael. Growing up, he was described as a mostly happy kid who adored his mother, but he did have issues, possibly due to growing up in a broken home and witnessing so much toxicity and violence. He struggled in school, he lost interest very quickly, and would regularly skip classes, which led him to fail the seventh grade three times. Despite that, Michael had a lot of friends. He enjoyed riding his bike and playing football and baseball. His mother would attend every game and even bring their video camera to record everything. They were very close, Michael and his mother. But Michael was also a bit of a troublemaker and had a short temper. He was known to argue with his mother a lot. His sisters called him an angry teenager. However, much of that anger was directed toward his father, who would regularly put Michael in the middle of their fights, which is so messed messed up. up. Yeah, to put your child in the middle of the fights that you're having as an adult is gross. Yeah, I mean, it's, I just don't want to use the word insane. No, but, but it is uh, not mentally healthy behavior. Absolutely by any not. stretch of the imagination. Yeah, it's no wonder that he was struggling. I mean, that is not okay to do. Yeah. Part of the divorce was the question of custody. And Edward would try to pay Michael to get him to live with him, which I'm sure only confused him further. But yeah. he didn't want to. He wanted to live with his mother. Flash forward to the night of December 4th. Michael was having a sleepover with his friend Josh Sansusi at his mother's home. The two had just gotten back to Michael's house from riding bikes and burning stuff on the railroad tracks. Michael had seen headlights come into the driveway, which was his mother returning home. She walked into the house and told him, I love you, good night, I'll see you in the morning. And that would be the last thing Rita ever said to her son. That night, Michael and his friend Josh went to sleep in Michael's room. He slept through the night until just before 6.30 a.m. Around that time, Michael and Josh had been woken up to an orange glow and the smell of smoke in the room. The boys got up to investigate where the light and the smoke was coming from. When they walked out of the room, Michael saw the glow was coming from his mother's bedroom. He called out to his mom, but got no answer. He ran outside to get a hose and then ran back in and through her door which is where he discovered his mother lying on the floor in her bedroom. She had been bludgeoned and set on fire from the waist up. Josh ran to get help, but it was too late. Around that time, Crystal got a call from her brother with the news. Rita Polite was just 40 years old when she died. According to the autopsy, Rita was knocked unconscious from a strong blow to the head. Tammy Nash worked for the Washington County Sheriff's Department back then and was one of the responding officers. She said it was clear that this was a murder. Rita had suffered blunt force trauma to the head and blood was visible on her bedroom walls, indicating a struggle had occurred. A fire marshal quickly concluded that an accelerant had been used to set her on fire. From the moment police arrived on the scene, Michael was their main suspect. They didn't feel like he had acted the way they expected him to. He wasn't emotional enough for their liking. By the time Crystal and Melanie had made it to the scene, Michael was already in the back of the police car. It was basically immediate. Police put Michael in the back of their car and asked him a few questions, and from there, he and Josh were taken to the station for questioning. A police report indicates that on the way, Michael asked an officer something that quickly put him under suspicion. He asked... Quote, what's going to happen to my mom's truck? Police felt that that was an odd question for Michael to ask, 
after what he had just witnessed? Why was he worried about who was going to get his mom's truck? Yeah, I mean, but like this is not evidence. No, it's absolutely not evidence. But that was basically what the police were basing their opinion of this 14-year-old on, was that one fleeting comment of a 14-year-old who was in shock, who had just witnessed his mother on fire on the floor, something that I can't even imagine seeing. And they're like, oh, that means he did it because he's so unemotional in this moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you just can't really know how you would react. No, exactly. Trauma looks so different in everyone. Yeah. Just because he's not bawling doesn't mean he's not traumatized. Yeah, not everyone's going to be hysterical. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Michael and his sisters didn't find the question odd. Michael's older sister, Crystal, said, When you lose someone, you want to hang on to things. To me, that's all it was. And our mom loved that truck. So she found it a very innocent comment. She's like, yeah, our mom loved that truck and he just wanted to know what was going to happen to it because that's important to him. A few hours after his mother's death, Michael was given a CVSA, or a voice stress analysis test, which is similar to a polygraph test. So it's not real? No, it's not. By the way? (laughs) Yes, it's not real. Okay. (laughs) Um, It's not admissible in court, um, but police use it and rely on it. They asked Michael questions like, did you murder your mother? Did you burn your mother? Do you know anyone who would want to hurt your mother? Do you know anyone who would want to burn your mother? And the test indicated he had deception on every question. At that point, he became the investigator's first and primary suspect. But when I think about a voice stress analysis test, he's a 14-year-old who has just been through an unbelievably traumatic event and he's being interrogated by police officers. Of course he's stressed. Yeah, Of course he sounds stressed. Why would you think he wouldn't? Like, in yeah. what universe would this 14-year-old boy not sound stressed? Also, how can you detect deception? Isn't the point that you aren't? Like, I, I don't know. Like, this is not science at all. Exactly. Well, that's exactly why it's not admissible in court. Yeah. So, anyway. But this was another huge reason why they were like, okay, this kid is to blame. At that point, they went from asking him if he had anything to do with it to telling him he had everything to do with it. This 14-year-old, the cops told him he had murdered his mother. This was a gruesome, bloody crime scene. I guess it's not impossible that a 14-year-old could be capable of doing that, but it would be extremely shocking if that were the case. And Michael didn't have a scratch on him. No injuries were found on him. No murder weapon. No blood was found on him. And this was a bloody crime scene. Wait, he didn't have any blood on him? No, absolutely not. And later on, Michael had said it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for a 14-year-old to do something that violent and heartless and then leave zero forensic evidence behind. Yeah, I mean, when you bludgeon somebody, you get blood everywhere. And there was. There was blood all over the walls. Yeah, you would have gotten something on you. Exactly. He he only had so much time before he saw another person. Like, he would have had blood on him. I mean, there was was his friend there, you know? Yeah. There was a witness. (laughs) Like... Yeah. I mean, did was there any sign of burning clothes? That's the only way... No. They had no physical evidence. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) what's the case then? I guess they're trying to get him to confess. This is what this tactic is, where they tell you what they want you to say. And then when you're 14 and your mom just died and you're stressed and they keep you for six hours telling you the same thing, eventually you just give in. Yeah, there is going to be a little bit of that. Not on Michael's side, but we're going to talk about that. And they're basically going to build whatever case they want. It's ridiculous. I mean, the bullshit that they've created in this is astounding. So... Because this is an arson case, the fire marshal came and questioned Michael as well and called in an accelerant detection dog. The dog alerted to traces of gasoline on Michael's shoes, which to police was a huge indicator that Michael was to blame because they determined gasoline may have been used to start the fire. But didn't he walk into the room? Yes, but they were like, oh, there's gasoline on your shoes. You wouldn't have walked into the gasoline you would have been like handling the gasoline if it was on your shoes. But 
One thing that I briefly mentioned earlier that was really bad for Michael was he had a history of setting fires. He enjoyed setting fires with his friends, including one that he had set with Josh on the railroad tracks near his house that night. He literally was handling gasoline Mm -hmm. that night but not not that he was he was just doing it oh, with his he, friend he already had it on his shoes from the railroad tracks possibly i mean so we'll, we'll talk about the accelerant on the shoes potentially later um but he very possibly could have gotten it on his shoes when he was lighting a fire on the railroad tracks and he had a history of setting fires because he was a 14 year old kid who liked playing with fire because he was just kind of a delinquent kid I mean, I also loved playing with fire. Yeah, who didn't? So, like, that was just who he was and what he liked doing. And he confessed, I lit a fire with Josh earlier that night. And they were like, well, that means that you did it. (laughs) Right. Right. So during questioning, Michael and Josh both insisted that they didn't know what happened to Rita and that they had stayed in Michael's room all night. But investigators told them that they didn't believe them. And the boys were questioned repeatedly. So two days after the murder and repeated questioning, so they went through two days of questioning, Josh gave a videotaped statement with an officer on each side of him and his mother present, and that statement seemed to poke a hole in Michael's account. He said he woke up to a noise in the middle of the night and he didn't see Michael in his bed, and this statement looked very bad for Michael. In the videotaped statement, Josh said, quote, I woke up again. I heard a dog barking. I heard a little thud. I thought I heard like a woman's voice, but I couldn't tell what she was saying. And then officer one asked him, did Bernie wake up too? Did you see Bernie in the room? Meaning Michael. And Josh said, no. And officer two asked, Bernie wasn't in bed. And Josh said, no, I didn't see him. Officer two said, could you have seen him if he was? Is that a yes or a no? And Josh said, yes. Officer two said, okay, so there's no doubt that he wasn't in the bed. And was he anywhere else in that bedroom? And Josh said, no. This is weird. So they release a tape? They took a videotaped statement of Josh. And shortly after that statement, on December 7th, 1998, 14-year-old Michael Polite was arrested for his mother's murder. Wow. So they have a witness that says that he's not in bed, mm-hmm. but then they don't really have anything past that. They have the, the accelerant. potential accelerant on the shoes. But that has plausible deniability, right? It could be from a different source. Yes, it could. I mean, you know, we, I guess we know what happens, but... Yeah, and we're going to get into all of, all of it, so... Yeah, I know, I feel so bad because I'm just like, I'm thinking the whole time that he's being questioned i'm like he should have a lawyer yeah absolutely have a lawyer there he's a kid who i know him and he he had a public defender i have this in my notes later but his lawyer um this was the first time that he had ever tried a murder trial on his own so he didn't know what he was doing and Uh, michael had yeah michael had absolutely no help And he was not given a fair trial at all. I mean, this is almost as bad as like medical malpractice, right? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's he just didn't get a fair trial at all. Like his lawyer was incompetent and the police were completely honed in on him. I mean, they didn't look into anyone else. They barely did an investigation because they were like, oh, it's him. Like they, they just... There's barely any police reports on this case because they didn't do anything. Like they just looked around and they're like, yeah, it looks like an accelerant was used, but they didn't even really do any real testing because they were like, oh yeah, this is good enough Yeah. because the kid was there and he's like a bad kid and he, you know, whatever. Ugh. It's just, it's insane how they can spin. I mean, what about the dad? Well, we'll talk about Hello? that later. I mean. So we'll talk about that later. Let's keep going. So on December 7th, 1998, Michael Polite was arrested. This was a rude awakening for Michael because up until that point, he always believed he would be found innocent because he didn't have anything to do with what happened to his mother. When Melanie and Crystal learned that their 14-year-old brother had been arrested for their mother's murder, they couldn't believe it. Both of Michael's sisters and his aunt and uncle, Patsy and Chuck Skiles, who lived across the street from his mother's house at the time of the murder, felt like the police had made a mistake. 
Patsy said that she and Chuck were the first people to see Michael after everything happened, and he didn't have a scratch on him. And if he had been the person who had killed Rita, he would have had something on him because she would have fought back. And not just that, but they felt like it couldn't have been Michael because he loved his mother. They were very close. I mean, sure, they fought because what teenager and their mother don't fight, but ultimately, they loved each other. Edward's stepmother, also named Crystal, told investigators not too far before Christmas, Michael had asked her if Santa was actually just his parents. He was sincerely asking if Santa was his parents at 14 years old. So, like, this is the kind of 14-year-old he was. Wow. Although his family wholeheartedly believed his innocence, Michael hadn't always been the best kid. He had a short temper and fought with his mother at times, like I had mentioned, and he failed the seventh grade three times. And 10 months before the murder, things got so bad, Michael had been hospitalized for behavioral issues after he threatened to kill his mother and himself. So there is that. this is not great for him. Okay, so Michael had made a comment that he would put her six feet under, just like her mom and her dad. And he said he never meant that comment, and it's the biggest regret of his life. He was just an angry 14-year-old kid who didn't actually mean it, But it's bad. It looks bad for him. And he was put away for that comment. So really? Well, I guess his mom was just like, we're not dealing like I'm not going to deal with that. You're just going to go away for a little while. Oh, I thought you meant like he got put away in jail for it. Oh, no, not juvie. Like she put him in a like a no, like they convict him on that statement. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like a mental health like he got help for Mm. mental health issues. But he says like, I, I didn't mean that at all i just was angry so but you know it's like it could be seen another way so it doesn't look good for him uh, yeah (laughs) that definitely doesn't look good for him in this instance i mean i'll i'll give you that so like i mentioned earlier there aren't many police reports for this case because not a lot of investigating was done but what was done was focused entirely on michael and one of the biggest pieces of evidence that they had was a statement that was taken from Michael during a suicide attempt of his at a juvenile detention center after he was arrested, which formed a quote-unquote confession. They asked him why he was trying to commit suicide, and he told them, quote, he didn't want to live anymore because the worst day of his life was December 5th. That's when they killed his mom. But what the juvenile detention officers recorded was, that's when I killed my mom. So there's a video? No, they wrote it down. They said, oh. we heard him say, the worst day of my life was December 5th. That's when I killed my mom. And that was his confession. But he says, I didn't say that. I said, that's when they killed my mom. But they said, he said, that's when I killed my mom. It's a one word difference, but it's a huge difference. Yeah. And that was the basis behind their entire case because th- that was a confession. What is, yeah, I don't actually know the laws or like what constitutes a confession. Because I would imagine you have to be, was he like on, like, okay, you're on record, like confess. Like, I think you have, don't you have to kind of do it in some more formal way? I don't think so. I mean, he was in a juvenile detention center. And if he said it in front of two officers, they're not going to just let it go and not record it. Even if they're like, okay, this is a recorded confession, you know? Yeah, yeah, but I guess I, I just I don't know what counts as a confession. Just because this I mean, just kind of seems flimsy. Sure, it, it is flimsy. It's absolutely flimsy. But according to these officers, he said that's when I killed my mom. But according to him, he said that's when they killed my mom, and they misheard him. Mm. And I mean, think about saying that sentence. You can say it so fast. That's when they killed my mom. Like it'd be so easy to mishear that, especially with like camaraderie happening around you and like noises and camaraderie i don't know i'm thinking you mean commotion commotion sure yeah maybe not camaraderie (laughs) whatever you know what i mean with commotion i'm thinking everyone's singing kumbaya yeah (laughs) you just missed it amazing no no no. definitely not a happy moment a very serious moment but um commotion especially with commotion happening around you a very charged moment like It'd be very easy to mishear what this kid is saying. And also, he's in there because he was arrested for his mother's murder. These people already think he killed his mother. So, of course, they're going to hear, that's when I killed my mom. Because that's what they think of him. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Like, they probably had already made up their minds, too. Exactly. 
So yeah, I, I don't know. It, and that's what the, the basis behind this entire case was. It was this confession. And it was, again, flimsy. And all the evidence was circumstantial. They didn't have any physical evidence. And even worse than that, they lost his mother's fingernails, which had blood and possible skin tissue underneath them, and the clothes Michael was wearing that night. So they misplaced some- So they lost evidence? Yes. How does this happen? I, I mean, shoddy police work. Like, they just did not do a good job. Like- Wow. I don't know. That's that's pretty bad. That is a huge piece of evidence. I mean, think about the... And again, I, I guess I don't really know exactly how good that would have been in 1998, the fingernail. I think they like, had DNA at that Yeah, point, I think right? they did too. But think about that. Like the, the underneath the fingernails, if she scratched someone, that could be their whole case. Yeah. <laughs> like that could prove that it wasn't Michael and they lost it. Yeah. Crazy. And they lost his clothes. Yes. Which didn't have any blood on it. Exactly, yes. So they can't even use that. Correct, yeah. And there was no physical evidence linking Michael to his mother's murder, and there were no eyewitnesses. So they had nothing. They had circumstantial evidence and this quote-unquote confession. Three years passed with Michael in custody awaiting trial. And then the prosecution came to him with a deal. Plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, and he would spend a maximum of 15 years in prison. Michael promptly rejected that plea. Michael said he didn't even think about it because he didn't murder his mother, so he wasn't going to say he did. In January of 2002, Michael Polite, then 17 years old, went on trial. His entire life was on the line. And I got a lot of information from the 48 Hours episode that was done on Michael's case, and they attempted to contact the prosecution and defense from Michael's trial, but they wouldn't respond. However, the current prosecutor of Washington County, Josh Hedgecourth, was willing to talk about this trial. And he said the most important evidence from the trial was the scientific evidence. That would start with the shoes that he was wearing at the sheriff's office. Not only had a dog detected an accelerant on Michael's shoes, according to the prosecution, later testing also confirmed the presence of gasoline on them. And there was a testimony that an accelerant had been used to burn Rita's body. And so all of these components together solidified that he must have set the fire. But Michael had told police that gasoline found on his shoes meant nothing and that he and his friends would often set fires for fun. In fact, he told police just hours before the murder, he and Josh had set a fire on the railroad tracks near his house. But the prosecution used that admission as another piece of evidence against Michael. They argued the burn pattern on the tracks matched the burn pattern on Rita. What do you mean the burn pattern? I don't even understand how that could be an actual piece of evidence that they presented to the court because how does the burn pattern on the tracks matching the burn pattern? Like, if, if both of them used gasoline, sure, okay, yeah, that's a gasoline fire, but how does that prove anything? He told you he used gasoline. That doesn't mean he then burnt in the house. Like, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, this isn't like a fingerprint, guys. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's ridiculous. Linda Dickerson Bell and Jonathan Peterson were both jurors during the trial, and both of them agreed that the burn evidence did not look good for Michael. The jurors had been told that Michael had a problem with setting fires and that he was basically the only person who could have done this. A witness testified about a disagreement Michael had with his mother weeks before the murder over money. After the disagreement, Michael sat flicking a lighter afterwards. So they were basically saying that this was a very threatening motion that he was doing at his mother over this disagreement. Michael later said during an interview that did happen, but not in the way the state portrayed it. He was flicking a lighter, but not as a threat. He was just a kid who was flicking a lighter. So they just painted him in this like menacing light, but he wasn't threatening his mother with a lighter. He was just flicking a lighter. Yeah. Also, this is not like, I don't know if I feel like it's not like a verbal threat. You no. Know? Yeah, you have to really read into that to be like, oh, he's threatening to burn you by yeah. flicking this lighter. Yeah. Anyway, the jury also, of course, heard about Michael's quote-unquote confession at the juvenile detention center one month after the murder. As a reminder, the report said, I haven't cared since I killed my mom. But Michael said 
that I haven't cared since they killed my mom. But the court would only ever hear the incorrect version because Michael was never put on the stand to clear it up. Seriously? Yes. And the jury was just left with even more unanswered questions when they were told that Josh, the other boy in the house that night, had been granted immunity. Linda Dickerson Bell, the juror, kept thinking, okay, this kid who has immunity must know something. But the jury never heard from Josh at all. He was never called to the stand, and they were never shown his videotaped statement, nor were Michael's sisters ever called to the stand. Linda what did, who did, what did this... What did the defense do? Exactly. What did the defense do? Nothing. Linda said she doesn't even think she heard the defense say Michael didn't do it. Really? Yes. Wow. The defense basically did nothing. They didn't call Michael. (laughs) They didn't call Josh. They didn't call his sisters. Yeah, because I'm thinking like, well, you have to bring up that he set fire on the tracks earlier to discredit the accelerant. You have to have his statement Mm -hmm. contradicting their account of his confession. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to call into question that he had nothing on him. He had no blood on him. You have to point at the lack of physical evidence. Mm -hmm. Did they do any of that? Yeah, the defense hinged its case on the lack of direct evidence. There was no murder weapon. Despite the violence of the attack, Michael had no injuries and no blood on his clothing. But that was the entire case. They didn't call any witnesses. Michael never went on the stand. He never even said Michael didn't do it. Like, I understand that this was this lawyer's first time doing a murder case. But like, this is a 14 year old you're talking about. Try harder. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm thinking like, like, does there need to be kind of like you need to shadow somebody before you try a case? Because I think they had because it said like this was the first time he had ever done it on his own. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, maybe it's just bad lawyers, but I mean, you know, this is, this is really serious stuff that you can't mess up, Mm -hmm. you know, but I guess, you know, it's on the jury too. Yeah. But I mean, the jury only knows what they're presented. I know, but I mean, I guess I don't know what's in the case, but it does seem like a lot of times they will convict people on circumstantial evidence only. Yeah. I mean, it must've been difficult because... The prosecution was really the only one that was talking talking and like yeah. bringing forward, I guess, any kind of argument because the defense, sure, they said, okay, there's no real evidence. There's no murder weapon. There's no blood like, and that's compelling, but it's not convincing enough, I guess, when you're brought forward all of this, like evidence after evidence after evidence and like argument after argument for like the prosecution. And, like, they paint him in such a terrible light. I mean, think about their whole job is to, like, make him look as terrible as possible. And they did a good job. I mean, which is, again, terrible for them to do to a 14-year-old. I mean, do you have no morals? Like, clearly this is based on nothing. Well, I mean, they believed that he did it, I guess. I, I, I guess. But, again, it's like they didn't look into anyone else, which... I guess is the police's the, the police's fault because that's not the the lawyer's fault. Like I guess I don't know if they knew that, but yeah. Oh, it just it's just disappointing. Yeah, it's it's angering all it's around. Angering, yeah. After three days of testimony, the case went to the jury, but the jury was left with too many questions. Linda and Jonathan Peterson felt like they still had so many unanswered questions, and they really wanted to get it right because he was so young but they were also extremely pressured by the other jury members to just find him guilty. Jonathan Peterson said, I think everybody finally got to me and just like, you know, we were ready to go home. And then I was like, hell, but you're ready to go home and this kid's ready to go to prison? So Shame on these people, you're ready to go home. Yeah, so after more than four hours, the jury filed into the courtroom with their verdict guilty of second-degree murder, and Michael was sentenced to life in prison. Linda Dickerson Bell said, I wept because it was wrong. Then why did you vote? That's what I want to know. All you need is one person. It needs to be unanimous. Mm -hmm. And there were clearly two. Clearly two of them were like, this is wrong. Yeah. But they were just pressured enough by the other people in the jury that they were like, Uh, okay, I guess we'll go home. I guess we'll go home. 
that really pisses me off. Me too. I mean, it's a 14-year-old's life. Like, it's a kid. Yeah, but, you know, I want to go home. Right. And eat dinner. I mean, I know that getting called onto a jury sucks, but you got to understand what the weight of what you're doing is. Mm-hmm. It's messed up. But that's what happened. That is what they did. That's <sighs> what was found. And after Michael Polite was convicted and sentenced to life at the age of 18... He was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary, once called the bloodiest 47 acres in America. They sent him to like, well, I, I guess. Yeah, like he was crime. sentenced to life in prison for murdering his mother. Oh, God. Yeah. So immediately when Michael got there, he became a target for attack because he was so young. Desperate for some sense of safety, Michael was forced to join a gang, which he didn't want to do, but he felt like he had to to survive. All the while, he longed to prove his innocence and get out of prison. He needed to hire a lawyer, so he asked his dad for help, which he didn't get. His father, Ed, was supposed to file some paperwork in order for Michael to be able to file an appeal, but he had to file it on time, and he didn't do that, which made it so Michael couldn't appeal. Michael was very upset and angry and told his father to never visit again, and he'd never be on the list. He then called Crystal, Ed's wife, and told her that he'd get Ed for setting him up. Because Michael believed Edward was behind his mother's murder. But Edward had an alibi. Okay, alibi from who? Crystal. Oh! But we'll talk about it. Come on, bit. I mean, this is like... Uh, no, no, we'll, we'll talk. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an alibi. He has an alibi. But isn't that messed up? His father didn't file paperwork on time so he it's couldn't like appeal the most important paperwork of your child's life period and sentence where were you well where were you hypothetically speaking and this is you know just a just hypothetically if edward did have something to do with rita's murder not saying he did but if he did why would he want to file the paperwork yeah oops I didn't do it on time. Therefore, you can't appeal. Sorry, son. Stay in prison for the thing that I maybe d did or didn't do. Yeah, I mean, my mind went to him as the first, yeah. like, immediately. Maybe you should they go back in time a, and they, talk to the damn cops. Yeah, like, they just got kidding? a divorce. And, and They were I'm violent getting... for 20 years. Oh, God. I I could scream. I, like, I cannot believe these, these cops. I cannot believe they did not look into anyone other than a 14-year-old who, like, sure, was a little bit troubled, but ultimately was 14 years old and loved his mother. I mean, there were so many other people that should have been looked into. Anyway, let's keep yeah, going. Yeah, I mean, I don't care how troubled somebody is. Like, you gotta look into everyone. Of course. Of course. And there was no evidence tying him to it. Like, he was just, he found, he was having a sleepover. If he was gonna do this to his mother, don't you think he'd be smart enough to do it on a night he's not having a sleepover? Don't you think? Yeah. Like, I mean, just, just thinking, like, logically, for, like, one second. <laughs> You're, like, tapping your head right now. Yeah, just for one, <laughs> one little measly second. Don't you think he'd be smart enough, if he's planning on murdering his mother, to do it on a night he's not having a sleepover with his bestie Josh? I mean, let's not have a witness, right? Yeah. Like, that's murder 101. Let's not have a witness. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's keep going. So, after that... After his father did not file the paperwork. That's murder 101. <laughs> I, it is. I mean, it is. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not a murderer, but that is murder 101. Anyway, after his father did not file the paperwork, Michael became extremely hopeless and turned to heroin to self-medicate. That was until he finally found something to give him an ounce of hope. Five years after his conviction, he wrote a letter to the Midwest Innocence Project, and they agreed to take his case. The organization worked on it for years, and eventually attorneys Trisha Bushnell, Megan Crane, Mark Emerson, and Ryan Ferguson became involved. And Ryan Ferguson, like Michael, was also wrongfully convicted at one point in his life and actually spent time in the same prison in the same cell block that Michael was in as they helped him. So wow. Ryan, Ryan Ferguson was like, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's do it, please. And this would be his first full legal team. So that's a win for Michael. How old is he right now? 
25. He was 18 30. when he was put in, and this is five years after his... 23. At that point. Yeah, but it's going to still take years, so... Oh, my God. His team picked apart the case against Michael. They believed it was based on bad science. In order to reopen his case, he had to bring forward new evidence, and that required filing a motion. That would be really important for Michael because it would be the first time he would be able to ask a court to hear his side of the story, and not just from that night of the crime, but also from his trial. Nothing could be left out. If he left something out that was important, he wouldn't get to file again. He got one shot to file, and if you didn't bring something forward in that time, then they would bar you from bringing things again. So this was a one-shot deal, all or nothing, boom. Boom, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad he has a legal team to do so. Exactly. They started with the prosecution's claim that an accelerant was used to set the fire that killed Rita. Did they lose that evidence too? They didn't lose it, but it was it was bad science. So when the fire investigator came to the scene, they immediately determined it was a fuel-fed fire, but that was based on just visual patterns. So they basically just looked at it and said, yep, that's fuel-fed, which at the time... <laughs> you vi- can't like take a swab test? Right, which at the time violated gold standards of fire investigation. There had to be lab testing. And lab testing was done on carpet samples from the crime scene, and there was no accelerant detected. Oh. The prosecution... Right. The prosecution explained that away by saying it could have burned up. But defense attorney Megan Crane says there's no scientific basis for that being possible. So they're like, if there was an accelerant used to start the fire, there would be accelerant present after, you know, the swab was done. Yeah. So they're like, okay, guys, you just fully fudged that. What the hell? The jury was made to believe that there was an accelerant used to set Rita on fire, but there was not. So that that's like oh, that was a huge piece of evidence that was completely fabricated. The main case against Michael was that it was a gasoline fire. And in order to attempt to tie Michael to the crime, the only physical evidence was the gasoline that the state alleged was on his shoes. But Michael's new lawyers found that Michael's shoes didn't have gasoline on them either. They said a chemical used in the shoe manufacturing process was wrongly identified as gasoline at trial. And even the Missouri State Crime Lab agrees. In a 2020 letter, officials say, quote, It is now known that solvents found in footwear adhesives have similarities to gasoline, but that in the late 1990s, this knowledge was not widely known. Wow. Which meant that the dog that alerted to Michael's shoes could have been smelling the chemicals used in the shoes. And this was a huge piece of evidence for the jury, that Michael had gasoline on his shoes. But really, it was probably just the adhesives that were used in the manufacturing of the shoes. Wow. Yeah. Wow, they're really, they're doing great work. Hell yeah. Like, they're picking this apart. As they How should. How do you find that? That's crazy. They said, That's we're going to get you out. Yeah. They also had an explanation for Michael's quote-unquote confession at the juvenile detention center. Trisha Bushnell said, In the same way we talk about tunnel vision, people can hear what they want to hear. We're talking about one word in a room where there's a lot of activity happening. They have a kid in a detention center that they believe has probably committed this crime, right? And so that's their view of him. So they basically heard what they wanted to hear. It was a one-word difference, and it's a pretty minuscule difference. So, I mean, that's exactly what we talked about. Like, yeah. they wanted to hear that, so they did. No, it's not like it's quiet. Right. In that room. Right. Yeah. Michael's new team also looked into Josh Sansusi to see if they could talk to him about the statement he gave. At this point, Josh is in his 40s. And he said he's never been quite the same since he woke up from that sleepover at Michael's at the age of 15 and found himself in the middle of a murder investigation. He was questioned by police repeatedly for hours at a time. He said, quote, every time I'd tell them something, they would be like, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. He then said, I remember telling my mom. I said, they keep saying that I'm lying. I don't even know if I'm telling the truth anymore. So the police literally told him, that's not what happened. This is what happened. Like they that put should, the words in his know, mouth. Like, that should be illegal. I don't know how it's not. They put the words into a 15-year-old's mouth. Yeah. Completely coerced. Like, 
Yeah. But the truth, Josh says, is that nothing out of the ordinary happened on that night in question. It was just a normal night. Josh told the Innocence Project he doesn't even remember saying Michael wasn't in his bed. He says if he said that, then it must have been at a very weak point. So clearly these police officers were just feeding him, you know, yeah, whatever. Coercing and was, him into making a statement. This was after two days of repeated questioning. and Not even, well, questioning is the wrong word. Telling him what happened. Exactly, what yeah. going on. He had gotten to the point where he's like, I don't even know what happened. Like, yeah. So they're like, so he wasn't in his bed? You didn't see him in his bed? You know, and he's like, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if you're in enough stress and you get told enough times, you can see how he could get there. Absolutely. At 15. Absolutely. And sadly <laughs> enough, Trisha Bushnell said she has seen this often in, in interrogations. This happens as a result of hours and hours of interrogation. The police can get someone to say what they want them to, to fit whatever narrative they want. And it's scary to think that this is something that happens to people. They can give a false confession or a false statement after hours of questioning and prodding. In a deposition, right before Michael went on trial, Josh said that he never sat up from where he was sleeping on the floor and that, quote, it's not that I did not see him in his bed, it's that I couldn't see him in his bed. There's no way I could see anything that's on top of the bed. So they were like, oh, so you didn't see him in his bed? And he said, no, but in reality, he wouldn't have been able to see him because he was on the floor. So he couldn't see anything on top of the bed. So Michael very well could have been in the bed and was in the bed. He just couldn't see him because he was underneath the bed. You know what I mean? Wait, are they in bunk beds? Is that what you're no, saying? No, so Josh was laying on the floor and Michael was in his bed. Oh, and so, he couldn't see up. Yeah, Josh couldn't see on top of the bed because he was on the floor. Yeah. And so when the police were like, did you see him in his bed? And Josh said no. I guess at the time, this was after hours and hours and hours of questioning, and he was worn down. That was him technically, I guess, telling the truth. But in reality, he wouldn't have been able to see Michael in his bed because he was on top of the bed. Yeah. This should have come out during a cross-examination. Exactly. This, yeah. is, this is where the defense should have called Josh to the stand or Michael or, you know, anyone to defend Michael. But it just didn't happen that way. Mm. so it's just a shame so why did josh take the immunity deal because he was scared he knew the cops were either going to try to pin it on him or on michael and he wanted the immunity deal that way he didn't have to worry about anything and i can't blame i him. don't blame him i mean these cops were clearly after whoever they could pin it on you know yeah Michael's lawyer said the prosecution was likely trying to get Josh to flip on Michael, and the fact that they didn't even put Josh on the stand says it all. It makes a lot of sense why the prosecution did not call Josh to the stand, but it makes no sense why the defense didn't call Josh. Even though Michael was convicted of second-degree murder, his two older sisters have always maintained his innocence and continued fighting for him. And I think that also says a lot, because... yeah. I mean, his whole family was like, there's no possible way he could have done this. Even through the years and everything, they're like, yeah, he's innocent. <laughs> like, yeah. And Michael believes his father, Edward Polite, like I said, is responsible for his mother's murder. His new legal team filed court documents suggesting Edward Polite to be an alternative suspect. Edward Polite at the time had been going through a messy divorce with Rita and was very unhappy about it. Only days before the murder... The financial terms of the divorce had been finalized, and Edward was furious. Rita had won several financial benefits, including half of his retirement, maintenance, child support, and monthly alimony. Melanie Polite said one thing she remembered about growing up with her dad was, you don't mess with his money. Crystal said he had an outburst in court and said, quote, you'll never live to see a dime of that money. And during that time... They didn't bring that up? No. And he said that in court. Yes. And during that time, his lawyer quit because he threatened Rita. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm like... Hello? I can't believe it. Like, uh, yeah. This was easily accessible and obvious mm -hmm. to anyone with a brain and thought at all that you would look into the recent divorcee. Mm-hmm. And that was only days prior to the murder. Their oh final God. divorce hearing was on December 1st, and Rita was killed on December 5th. 
You'll never live to see a dime this of is, that money. This is not funny, but... And that was four days before. I can't believe it. I know. I can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, this is all alleged. We don't know that he did this, but... Dude, you're not going to look? Right, right. You're that's that's the look? thing. That's the thing is that the investigators didn't even look into Edward. It's like really. you like, saw billowing smoke and never looked for a fire. Exactly. And like, yes, he had an alibi and I'll get into that, but there were other people that should have been looked into. So let's keep going. So police did interview Edward Polite after the murder and he had an alibi. He was at his home, which is near St. Louis, which is almost 90 miles away at the time of the murder. He had been home and answered the phone at 7 a.m. when he got the news about Rita. His wife, Crystal, had been asleep in bed at the time, but had been woken up by the call. Edward worked the night shift, so Crystal wasn't sure what time Ed had gotten home, which for a while made her question if he had killed Rita. But that was until the autopsy report said her time of death was 6 a.m., which would have meant Edward would have had to drive 90 miles in 60 minutes, which would have been very unlikely because he would have had to drive 90 miles in 60 minutes to be home to then answer that call at 7 a.m. How sure are they about the time of death? I guess pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But Michael's defense team says investigators didn't look hard enough. Michael believes Ed may have had help with the murder. Michael believes Edward hired his cousin, Johnny Polite, to murder his mother. Michael's legal team identified witnesses who placed Johnny near the crime scene on the morning of the murder just as first responders were arriving. A man named Larry Lee, who had known Johnny for years, saw him walking down the railroad tracks near their home that morning. Johnny walked up to Larry and asked if he heard about Rita and said, quote, somebody killed her. At what time? That morning, as, you know, first responders were arriving. Yeah, I know, but I'm like, does he have an exact time? No, I don't have the time of that interaction. But I mean, that's, wow. Yeah. About a week later, Larry's wife, Carolyn, says Johnny came to their door And she said, it was like six o'clock in the morning. He said, I need to know what you know about Rita's death. Me and Edward are doing our own investigation. And we heard you were up at the store talking about it. And she said, Johnny, I don't know nothing. And he said, no, we need to know what you know. And then she said, you know, I think it's time for you to go. So he basically came in there and was like, are you talking about the murder? And like, you know, what do you know? Ed and I are doing our own investigation. Like he was basically like threatening her. And then Carolyn Lee, who was Larry Lee's wife. Oh, the man who saw him walking on the train tracks. Oh, so they knew it was a wit. He was a witness. Yes. And so Johnny came up to Carolyn and was like, kind of threatening her and was like, are you talking about it? Yeah. Yeah. And she was like, you gotta, you gotta leave. Time to go. Another man places Johnny Polite's truck near the same spot that Larry Lee says he ran into Johnny on the morning of the murder. The man says he saw the truck just as emergency vehicles were coming down the road. Former investigator Tammy Nash says she doesn't remember hearing that Johnny Polite had been seen that morning, but she does recall something that happened in the days after the murder, once the crime scene had been released. Somebody came into the sheriff's department and said that they had found a tire iron or a tire tool or something in Michael's closet. Police records show the person who found that tire iron was Johnny Polite. So Johnny Polite came into the sheriff's office and was like, I found this tire iron, a.k.a. the murder weapon, in Michael's closet. After the police investigated? Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tammy Nash Said this she was, is this is curious, right? As a police officer and investigator, don't you think you'd be like, "Hmm, I searched that crime scene why don't myself." You, uh, why don't you come into this room? Yeah, I searched that crime scene myself, and I didn't see that tire iron. Yeah, you think that they so, would have? They would have found that ten times over. Yes, of course they would have. So why, they wanted to find it. So why is this man who's related to the deceased? And related to the man who's divorced to the woman who threatened her in court only four days ago, coming to this office to then give me a murder weapon and potentially frame a 14-year-old. That they didn't use in court. Right, exactly. I don't know. Sounds curious to me. Yeah. 
Um, that's not what happened. So Tammy Nash says she was certain she could not have missed that in her initial search of the house. So even Tammy, who was one of the police, one of the first responders on the scene was like, there's absolutely no way I missed that. No Mm -hmm. way. Which means that someone placed it there. She even said it. She's like, someone put it there then. So Tammy went and retrieved the tire iron from Michael's closet. And it was later ruled out as the murder weapon because she even acknowledged that it was placed there later. She's like, this isn't the murder weapon because someone put it there. Why would someone be putting it there? (laughs) It was like, there's also a receipt and it's brand new. Why would someone be putting it there if not to frame the 14-year-old? Yeah. What in the world is going through these investigators' uh, heads? I'm willing to bet it was bought after the murder, too. I mean, maybe not. Maybe it was the murder weapon. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it was just wiped down so there's no fingerprints. Like, it's very possible. Anyway, Michael believes it was planted, and so does Tammy. <laughs> so yeah. it's not funny. I'm just, like, astounded. Michael's sister said she stopped talking to her father when he sent her a quote-unquote email joke with a video of a husband killing his wife. An email joke. Yeah, so that's interesting. It was a video of a man giving his wife a car and the woman hugs her husband and gets in the car and then the car blows up and then the husband like laughs and he thought it was how is that funny he thought it was so funny that this guy killed his wife and she was like this is in very poor taste my mother just died and she stopped talking to her father yeah i mean this guy sounds like a piece of work Mm-hmm. so that's the kind of man yeah. Anyway, so Michael Polite's legal team was shut down by appeals court at every turn. It was a constant battle with letdown after letdown. But thankfully, in 2021, there was an unexpected development when a bill passed in Missouri giving juvenile offenders convicted of serious crimes a second chance. And it gave Michael an immediate parole hearing. Michael went before the parole board asking for his release. He said, I told him I was innocent. I told him this is why I'm innocent and this is why you should believe I'm innocent. And it worked. On April 22nd, 2022, Melanie and Crystal brought friends and family and a change of clothes to the Jefferson City Correctional Center and Michael was released from prison. And outside of prison that day, Michael saw a bird flying overhead and he said he felt like it was his mom there with him. She said, she's always in my thoughts, she's always in my mind, and everything that I'm processing today is guided by her. Michael left prison that day doing one of the things he enjoyed most before he went in, riding a bike. (laughs) I thought you were going to say setting a fire. No! (laughs) Take it back. You take it back. Sorry. He rode a bike. I know, but it just would have been so funny. No, it wouldn't have. He rode a bike away. Because he loved riding bikes. I know, okay. This is a wholesome I'm ending. I'm sorry. I fucked it up. I'm sorry. You messed up my wholesome ending. All right, we can You we threw can off my groove. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> he rode his bike away from the prison, which is, you know. God, how does that feel? How does that, how does it experience, like, I mean, multiple decades yeah. later? He was like 38 you when get he got to, out or something. Like, how does that bike ride feel? I have no idea. I mean, that's just... Freedom. Like, the actual, like, freedom. Yeah. I don't know. Following his release, Michael moved in with his sister, Melanie. He started getting those reminders of prison, his tattoos covered up with new art, and he also found a job as a carpenter and got his driver's license. But as of now, he is still a convicted felon on parole. Michael wants to clear his name, and it just might happen because Josh Hedgecourt, the current prosecutor in the county where the murder took place, has filed a motion asking for Michael's conviction to be overturned. Hedgecourt agrees with Michael's attorneys that the scientific evidence used to convict Michael is problematic. He doesn't believe Michael received a fair trial, and if presented the case today, he wouldn't file the case. But, wow. Yeah. But while the local prosecutor believes Michael's conviction should be thrown out, another public official, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, is fighting it. In every exoneration in Missouri, the Attorney General fights it because they say, quote, we have to respect, honor, and protect the verdict of these jurors. That <laughs> okay. goes, But that goes at the window when the jurors themselves want the verdict overturned. And in sworn affidavits, five jurors have questioned whether Michael got a fair trial, including Jonathan Peterson and Linda Dickerson-Bell. 
Linda Dickerson Bell said, I do not believe that Michael Polite killed his mother, but I don't know how to fix it. So I guess they're in the in the works of trying to get his his name cleared. Yeah, I mean, what more do you need? You have both sides of the case. You have multiple jurors on the case. Yeah. It sounds like if you reviewed the case at all, yeah, you would be convinced the yeah. parole board was. Yeah. And now like one AG. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of hoops. It's just like, I don't know. It's just, it just feels like lazy to me. Like, oh, we trust in the process. Like it doesn't ever go wrong. No, oh, the like, process. I mean. Yeah. There's unfortunately just a lot of hoops that they have to jump through to get his name cleared. But it looks like they're jumping through them. So they're trying. Hopefully it'll go through and he'll be cleared because, I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, if anything should go through. Yeah, it's absolutely this. In a court filing, the attorney general's office said Michael, quote, cannot meet the standard of actual innocence and has argued that evidence against Johnny and Edward Polite would have been inadmissible at trial. So they're, you know, fighting it. But Michael hopes that a judge will hear the case and decide to overturn his conviction. But in the meantime, prosecutor Judge Hedgecourth has said that the local sheriff's department has reopened the investigation into Rita's murder. It's unknown whether Johnny Polite or Edward Polite are persons of interest, but the case has been reopened. So yeah, there is I that. I mean, they shouldn't say that, but I would have to imagine. Well, we don't know. That and they, they that aren't they saying it. they might be. That is possible. We don't know, and they aren't saying that, so we can't speculate, I guess. We shouldn't. But I don't we know. shouldn't, but we, I'm just saying I that if we were to speculate. I don't know. I'll, like, if I had to. If we had to think about it logically, they might be someone of interest to the Maybe. police. I don't know. Possibly. I'll, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, I'm not making any hard statements. But <laughs> that is the end of Michael Polite's story. Hopefully he gets his name cleared because this has been a long journey for him and he does not so deserve long. this craziness. He did nothing wrong. I know. How old was he? He when was he... 14 when this happened. No, no, no. When he got let out. Oh, um, he was 18 when he was put in and he was released in 2022. I don't know. He was like, he was in his late 30s. Wow. That's yeah. so much of his life. Yeah. Yeah, I feel really bad. I mean, I can't, like, to lose your mother in that way mm-hmm. is unfathomable to me. Traumatizing, yeah. yeah. And, and then, I mean, it was unfortunately just the beginning. Yes. So, I mean, I'm really glad that his family supported him throughout this. Me but, too. I mean, this Except is... Except his father. Well, it kind of sounds like everyone kind of cut him out. Yeah. I hope justice is done at some point. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, And at the very least, some justice was done, right? Like he's out of prison. He is, he's got a job. He's got his driver's license. He's, you know, got his life back. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's definitely not fair, but he's making steps in the right direction. And there, there are people in the right places, like jumping through those hoops for him. So wishing him the best. Yeah. I hope he gets to ride his bike as long and as far as he wants to. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. For Christ, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, right. Um, But anyway, that is that on that. What is your good thing? Ooh, I purchased new golf clubs. They have come in. (laughs) This is another golf update. Your good thing is always golf related. I like golf. It's like what the bike is to Michael. Okay. Okay, let me have golf. You can have it. Uh, I got new clubs. They came in. I'm going to pick them up today. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is about new clubs. I've never bought new clubs for myself, but I haven't had new clubs in like eight years. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of using them is like... They feel crisp. Yeah. It just... I don't know what it is. It just feels great. Good. I'm you know, glad. It's almost like a new car. Okay. You know? It doesn't have the new car smell though. No. Mm. They have the new iron smell. Oh, new iron smell. I don't know if I don't know what it smells like. I'm gonna oh, experience it today. Give it a whiff. So all right. I don't know. Good feels. Good thing. What's your good thing? My good thing is that I am going on a little weekend trip to New York to see my my grandfather Papa get kind of knighted. Kind of. <laughs> kind of knighted. When I heard about this, I I just thought this is the purest expression of who he is i am so excited so this is a (laughs) bit confusing i'm sure for people who don't know so 
we are going to medieval times, which is like basically <laughs> um, a jousting show, like a like basically like a ren fair, but just like a show where you eat food with your hands and you watch knights of like you you have every knight has a different color like you're like oh i i'm the green knight i'm the red knight i'm the blue knight and you're all mm-hmm. like cheering for different knights and because you want your knight to win obviously and it's like a jousting show and like whatever you they ride horses around it's very fun so we're going there for his 80th birthday and he's very excited because it's yeah. all he wanted to do but it's even more exciting because he wanted to get knighted and we are getting him knighted for his 80th birthday at medieval times and I have never been so excited for anything um, because it's just going to be a ridiculous, incredible time. I will post about it on the close friends list for those okay. of you on Patreon. <laughs> you, I'll bring you along. Yeah, I don't know. It's just going to be incredible. So that's where I'm going. Although I've just been all over the place and it's another travel endeavor for me. Uh, last one. Last one, kind of. For, yeah, yeah not but, really. But. <laughs> I mean, mostly. Yeah, but just a little weekend trip back home to New York for like a for my papa's birthday, and I'm very excited um, to see him get knighted and have some medieval times craziness and eat some turkey legs with my hands. So that's yes. <laughs> it'll be great. Um, anyway, that's my good thing. And thank you guys so much for listening. And if you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at not today underscore podcast. If you would like to see that close friends list and also listen to a bunch of bonus episodes check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash not today podcast if you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that's happened to you and you'd like to share it with us and possibly hear it on an upcoming listeners episode send it to no today podcast at gmail.com we have a tiktok that is not today podcast and a twitter that's not today podcast but the t on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense and just keep breathing yeah yeah